I like one of the, the end of the year. Um, one of the things that happens, you know, um, different shows will show, you know, the top 10 this and what happened this year. And for whatever reason, I just, I'm a numbers guy. I love those. So when a book came out a number of years ago, it was uh, written by Michael Hart. He's an astrophysicist. He took the stab at trying to identify in his mind the top 100 most influential people in the world. I, I think he's pretty courageous, honestly, to number one, kind of identify 100. I, I mean, I could go one through five pretty easy, I think. But if I was trying to figure out, you know, 87 and 84, I mean, I would have no idea. But he did. And he actually ordered them. People like Sigmund Freud is on his list. And you may not like Sigmund, but the reality is he probably was one of the founders of what we would consider psychology today. Uh, Linus Pauling, you know, he's on there. And he's the one who kind of uh, enabled us to understand what's happened in the last four weeks. He's the one who helped scientists understand that germs cause disease. And we've all been germed to death in the last four weeks or five, whatever that number is. And you know, you know, these little microbes that you can't see and they float around the air and, um, and then they get inside of you. And the next thing you know, you just feel like it was a semi that hit you. Uh, you know, uh, he's, you know, Pastor, excuse me, Louis Pasteur, what I say, Linus Pauling. Uh, I'm getting my individuals mixed up. Linus is probably in there too. But, um, Pasteur was the one who, who helped us to understand that. He, he actually was also the one who helped us to figure out how to inoculate ourselves against some of those diseases. Significant person. Thomas Edison, number two. He, Michael, decided that in his mind, Jesus was number three. Now, I can guarantee you, I mean, I don't like his list. I appreciate what he did. Uh, Jesus would be number one and there would be nobody even close to it if I was writing the book. But he wrote it. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I read through it, and, and I understand what he said, but I, I don't necessarily, again, agree with it. But Muhammad was number one for him. What I like about what Michael did is he did what Jesus did. He, he did it in a different way, but really he did the same thing that Jesus did. The, the text says that Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, and uh, he turned to his disciples, and he said, in a way just like Michael did, who do people say that I am? He zeroed it down to Peter, and he looked at Peter, and he goes, hey, Peter, who do you think I am? How important am I to you? Am I number one? Am I number 50? Who am I? If you don't answer that question, you're not really wrestling with the reality of this question because I think it's actually the most important question you're ever going to ask. And it's the one that Jesus asked. And every one of us have to deal with it. That's why I appreciate what Michael did. I don't necessarily agree with his end because I don't think he understood Jesus. And partly it's because Michael, like a lot of the people here, answered the question from one perspective. There's really two perspectives that you can answer that question. It is the perspective of observation. Who do people say that I am? And one of their responses was, well, he kind of sounds like John the Baptist. He's saying things like repent, and he's saying things like whitewashed sepulchers, and he doesn't like the Pharisees, and we don't like them either. And so it's kind of like, I think he's kind of like John the Baptist. And he's weird. I mean, John the Baptist ate kind of strange stuff. Jesus doesn't have a house. He's a carpenter for pity's sake, and he doesn't even build himself a house. What kind of carpenter is that? A loser. 
They didn't understand him, but, but it looks like John the Baptist. Or some of them said, the next verse, well, he kind of sounds like Elijah. And, and maybe that makes sense, because if you were to go to their last prophet, who was Malachi, before John came on, Malachi said something that he said, there's going to be a, one coming who is in the spirit of the likeness of Elijah. And the fact is, through observation, yeah, Jesus kind of sounds like Elijah. I mean, Elijah did some really strange things and really powerful things. I mean, man, that guy did some supernatural stuff. And he, he survived in ways that we never imagined. And he called down fire on these prophets. And, well, Jesus is doing the same thing. You go to a wedding with Jesus and it's a party. In fact, if you have a wedding, you want to invite Jesus because you don't have to pay for the wine. And so they they kind of threw observation, and that's one way you can answer that question. And that's what Michael did when he asked the question, who's the most influential? And he addressed Jesus this way. He said, Jesus launched a, a, a religion that is expanded around the world. He's launched a religion that has lasted and has grown larger outside of its point of origin than any other religion. No other religion has done that. And for that, he says, I think he needs number three. That's observation. But then Jesus comes to Peter. And he looks at Peter, and I think he chose Peter because I think he liked him. And number two is because Peter was always good for an answer. Everyone else wanted to be silent. Peter, not Peter. Peter's like, I'll tell you who I think you are. And Jesus says, Peter, who, who do you think that I am? Now, I, I, I think Peter was nervous. They hadn't had that get behind me Satan conversation. That would make him even more nervous. But I think Peter has had enough of Jesus that he both loved him and was at times terrified of him. But Peter comes back and he goes, you know what, I'm going I'm to take a leap of faith. I'm going to go way outside of what everyone else has said. I think you're the Christ. I think you're the one who David prophesied about. I think you're the one that Daniel prophesied about. I think you're the one that Isaiah prophesied about. I think you're the one. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus comes back to him and he says, blessed are you, Simon Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. There's two ways you can answer this question. Who do you think Jesus was? By observation, what he taught, what he did, or by revelation. And Jesus says in this text, it's the most important question you're ever going to answer and... If you answer it by observation, you're probably going to come up with the wrong answer. Why? Because Jesus, from Peter's perspective, says, you're the Christ. Peter later, at the end of this little section, says in verse 20, then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Or some of you have the translation, he was the Christ. What was he saying? Peter says, when I look at you, I think you're the one. Christ comes from Christos. It means to be the anointed one or the chosen one. Chosen by who? The Father. Anointed by who? The scripture is going to tell us the Holy Spirit. You're the one. 
You're the one that they prophesied about. You're the one that said the grave will not hold you. You're the one that David spoke of. You're the one that Isaiah spoke of that's going to come and preach and liberate and free people. You're that one. And Jesus says the only way you're going to get that is not through observation. Time magazine, every periodic, you know, 10 years, they run some kind of story on the impact of Jesus. But they never define him from Peter's perspective. They always define him from his impact, what he said. Peter says, if you're going to get it right, the only way you're going to get it right is through revelation. And that is God tells you through the scriptures that which is ordained by God. What does it mean that he's the anointed one? The Old Testament predicted that he would do that. That God would send an anointed one. Israel is, by the way, they're still waiting for the anointed one. It's the one that God spoke of in Genesis. That one that would come and crush the serpent's head. That one that would free the captives. That one that would set people free. That's the one. The Old Testament spoke of it. Adam and Eve spoke of it in Psalm 16 and 22, 45 and 110 and Daniel 9. And they believed that he was coming. But what they believed is that Jesus the Messiah was going to come and do something much like a warrior. He's going to come into Jerusalem. And he's going to set up shop in Jerusalem. Why? That was the holy city. And he was going to set them free from the nemesis that they thought was the worst evil on earth. And that was Rome. Maybe that's the reason why so many of them missed him. Peter didn't. The father revealed to him, he's the one. Check it off, Peter. Go through all of the lessons you've been taught. What will the Messiah do? What will he look like? Peter, take a look. And as the father stirred in his heart, he had the courage to come on that day. But why did most people miss him? Because he was anointed to set captives free and they didn't get that. When Jesus came into the synagogue one day, he picked up the book. He found a place where it was written. He's reading from Isaiah 61 at this point. And he began to read out loud in the synagogue. It says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set set at liberty those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus then put the Bible down and he set it down. And he said these words. Today this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. They didn't get it. They didn't put it together. Don't be hard on them. John the Baptist almost missed it. Remember John, the one who baptized Jesus? The one who said, I am not fit to untie your sandals? He's the one who was in prison. 
getting ready to have his head taken off. And he grabs his disciples and say, hey, would you go ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? I, uh, John the Baptist. The scripture says there's not been one born of a woman other than Christ that exceeds his greatness. And he almost missed Christ. Why? Because Jesus came in a way that they didn't expect. Oh, they understood the the anointed one, the chosen one is going to set us free. But then their mind, freedom was Rome. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And I hope you can. Can you fathom going into the middle of Ukraine today and saying to the Ukrainians, there is an evil that is greater than Putin. Can you imagine going to Kiev? Can you imagine going anywhere in Ukraine and saying there is an evil that is greater than Russia and you need to be set free from it? And they were all like, man, what's that evil? Look in the mirror, it's you. My guess is French probably wouldn't make it out of town. Because if you are trying to convince the nation, the country of Ukraine, that there is an evil greater than Putin, they're not in. And if you try and convince Israel that there is an evil that is greater than Rome, they'll tell you, you're not going to make it home today. But Jesus did. Maybe that's why so many of them missed him. And maybe so many today miss him. And maybe that's why you've missed him. It's because God doesn't cooperate with you. He doesn't do the things that you want. He doesn't act the way you want. He doesn't hate the people you hate. It's true that Jesus came. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. The anointed one. Anointed by the spirit. Sent by the father. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Israel didn't want that. By and large, people don't want it. They want their life better. They just don't want the church to be focused on the poor. They want the church to be focused on the upwardly mobile. And that's what Israel was. And that's why so many people miss him. It's because if you were to go into Ukraine today and say, there is an evil that is greater than Putin, look in the mirror, it's you. They would not understand you. In fact, they would probably most likely hate you. But that's the Messiah. And he came to the nation of Israel and he said this, dear friends, Rome, it's not your problem. Rome is not your issue. You are your issue. And more evil than Rome is the blood that flows in your heart. And more wicked than Rome is the poison that makes its way through and affects the way you think and and causes you to think and act the way you do. And Jesus says, I've come not to condemn you, I've come to free you. And he says the same thing to us. We always love to have an enemy. The church loves to have an enemy. The Hollywood is the enemy. Biden is the enemy. I don't care who your enemy is. Jesus would say the same thing. I have not come to overthrow Hollywood. 
I've come to set your poisonous heart free and to overcome the sin that is in you. And when he does, he says, I've not only been anointed to set the captives free, but I've been anointed to build a church. Jesus replies when he looks at Peter and Peter says, you're Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the called one, the chosen one that has come to set the prisoner free. And Jesus says, Peter, you're right. Blessed are you. My father's revealed that to you. And then he goes on and he says, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, some churches have understood that. It's on, the, on Peter as an apostle or Peter as a pope. And, and that's where the church is going to be built. No, you missed it. It's not Peter. It's the confession. What's the confession? You are the Christ. Somebody asks you, do you go to a confessional church? Do you, do you have a confession? You need to tell them, yes, we are. We're a confessional church. We have one confession. Jesus is the Christ. That's our confession. That's the essential confession of the church. That's what Jesus told us. And by the way, just speaking as a pastor, this is one of my favorite passages. Why? Because whenever I get into those moments where I feel like the place is falling apart, like there's this family warring with this family, and it's like, God, I don't know how to pull this together. And, and, and this person wants to take this person out. And this masked individual sees this unmasked individual as a threat. And this non-vax individual is suspicious of these vax people. And they, they kind of want to get into the church. And the next thing you know, you're going, oh, God, hold it all together. And I can just hear Jesus whisper, hey, hey, hey put your hands down. I got this. This is my church. Mark, it's not yours. You're going to die one day and this church is going to continue until I return. I hope we all get to go together. But the fact is, Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to build this church. Not you. I'm the one that's going to hold it together. I'm the one that's going to bring them together. There's a lot of imagery out there, uh, and I like them all because I'm kind of from an agricultural background. I, I enjoy the pictures of Jesus where he's got a staff and he's got a sheep over his shoulder. But there's an image that I've never seen. Maybe you have. And if you're an artist, would you draw it? Because it's the image here. And, and the image is of a master builder. And he's got a set of blueprints. And he's constructing something that's going to be glorious. What makes a master builder? It's a person that can build in any circumstance, in any context. And whatever they build is beautiful, effective, useful, and glorious. I wish somebody would paint that picture because that's what Jesus is doing here. And the, the amazing thing to me is that Jesus not only said he would build the church, but he's going to build it in a variety of different places, and they're all going to look differently. 
with some friends from this church and others, I, I have visited the church in Brazil. And sometimes you'll go into an area of the, the favelas and, and you'll go there. And I, I mean, it's ran by the mafia and it's, the police don't even go there. And yet you go in there and you're going to find the church and they're worshiping. And their worship is just, it, it's absolutely spellbinding. It, it, they just lift the roof off of wherever they're at. It's small, but unbelievably powerful. You can make your way to South Korea and the church is going to look different there. Uh, uh, one church that we visited is about 700,000. Just a little small community. And if you go there seven days a week to this church at 5.30 in the morning, that's when they begin prayer. Every day they don't miss and you show up and the pastor's up on the stage and he's praying and two or 3,000 are out in the sanctuary and they're all praying. And they don't wait for him to pray, they pray. It's just one loud, crazy place. And the 5.30 group walk out the door and then the seven o'clock group walk in the door and they just cycle the seven days a week. They don't miss. One dear friend that came out of that church was on staff at that church. He helped us launch a Korean church in Denver. And he's the one who told me somebody came to that church, uh, the, the church in Seoul, and asked them, Pastor Young Cho, what was it that you did that, that got this church to pray like this? And he said, it helps that North Korea is just across the border. They pray. And God is building his church there. One time when Carrie and I, a number of years ago, were in Singapore and we went to Faith Baptist Church and we were singing and preaching at a variety of different churches. And we went to this one church. They had a traditional service in one section of the church and then they had the uh, crazy charismatics uh, in another one. And so they said, hey, you're going to sing and preach in this one. And they said, you got to sit in the front row because if you don't sit in the front row, you're never going to make the stage. It was pandemonium. But remember when Hong Kong was being taken back by China. There's a church in Singapore that said God's going to build his church in Hong Kong. And you know what this church did? It took its top six pastors, senior pastor on down. Packed them up. Shipped them to Hong Kong. And said, you live out your days there. We will see you in heaven. And they took... The top six pastors from that church sent them to Hong Kong because God is going to build this church. Now, I actually don't want to live in a country where we don't have this freedom. Some people say, well, that's the only way God's going to purify his church. Well, if that's the only way he purifies his church, okay, I'm in. But the reality is I don't like to sign up for it. But here's six pastors and their whole families I wonder if the teenagers got a vote. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 no. Let's stay here in Singapore. This is a good place to live. But they didn't. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And every country I've ever visited, you go there and it will look different. They'll sing different songs. They'll worship differently than we do. They'll probably dance a whole lot more than we do. But God says, I'm going to build my church. And he made this promise about it. Not only will I build it, but I will sustain it. 
And if the gates of hell, and they will, come after it, they're going to crumble under my power. Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. What's the rock? I believe it's the confession. Jesus is the Christ. It's the essential confession of the church. Every one of you go and attend a confessional church. But then he makes this statement. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now Satan's going to raise up lunatics. He always has. He's going to raise up tyrants and they're going to do everything they can. They're going to make the church illegal. They're going to tax the church. They're going to attack the church. They're going to have meetings, city chambers, and they're going to say no more large churches like they did in Fort Collins. And they're going to say no more churches this size. We, it takes uh, property off the tax rolls. They'll do anything and everything they can. They'll make the church illegal. They will suggest that if you preach the word of God, it's a hate crime and we're going to put your pastor in jail. They'll do it. They will stop at nothing. But you've got to get Jesus' heart. You can throw anything you want at the church and I will defeat it. I'll take it down. There's nothing Jesus says that was ultimately going to win the day. And so for those of you who think, oh, the church in America is dying. No, it's not. It might be getting purified. It might be getting a revision. It might be getting Jesus kind of going through it. But my friend, Jesus is the one who promised. If you live with my confession, I will build the church. One of the things, maybe that's the saddest thing for me in 38 years, is the greatest critics in our country of the church is not outsiders. It's the insiders. It's Christians. Who for whatever reason feel the need to pick up the banter of Hollywood and criticize the church. I want to warn you. You're talking about Christ's bride. You talk about my wife that way and you and I are going to have fighting words. And I wonder sometimes if Jesus doesn't say, hey, wait a minute. This church that you're degrading, that you're tearing down. That's my bride. It's not perfect. It's not beautiful. But I love her. I died for her. And I'm going to build her. I'm going to make her into something glorious. And she's going to endure. She will. Some days she'll be on a wobbly knee. And there'll be other days that she has a, a cracked foundation. But, but the promise is this. Peter... If you hold to my confession, I will build that church, I will sustain that church, and it will be invincible. God's chosen one will build an invincible church. Scott McKnight is a professor, and he hands out this little test, first day of every class that he ever teaches this class. And the test is uh, 24 questions about Jesus. He just asks you a series of questions. 
One of the questions like, is, do you think Jesus is a moody person? Is he an extrovert? Is he the life of the party? And he kind of goes down through these, what I would call personality questions about Jesus. After the 24 questions, doesn't take you very long to get that, is, is Scott rolls you over to another 24 questions, and now he's asking the same kind of personality questions, not about Jesus, but you. And, and, what McKnight has noticed is this, in, in the dozens and dozens of years that he's taught and given this test, and a score of other people give the same test just in their classes, what they discover is a lot like philosopher Voltaire noticed. He says that God has made us in his image, and we have given him the favor of making him in our image. McKnight has noticed that in the years that he's given this test, that when people come to the end of it, Jesus looks a whole lot like them. Acts like them, has their same values. But if Jesus were to ask Peter, Peter, am I a whole lot like you? Peter would say no. You're nothing like me. You're the Christ. The one sent by the Father. Anointed by the Holy Spirit. And you have founded a church that is going to be victorious and invincible. Undefeated. And you're going to set people free. Not from Rome. Not from Russia. Not from Hollywood. Not from the Republicans and not from the Democrats. You're going to set people free from the poison of their own sin. And when you do, their name's going to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And they're going to be invited into a church that will never, ever be ultimately defeated. Peter, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Am I a lot like you? Peter would say, you're nothing like me. You're the Christ. My friends, Jesus asked you that question. It's the most important question you'll ever be asked. And your answer can change your life. It'll alter everything about you. If you answer it from revelation... If you answer it from observation, you might come up with, Jesus looks a whole lot like me. But if you answer it from revelation, Jesus can save you. He can free you. And he'll invite you into a church that will transform a city and a nation. Why? This God's chosen one. He's been chosen to build a church. With people just like you and me. Not perfect. Just invincible.